0: I'm Jenny Murray, and this is Now I'm Grown Up, a podcast about living longer, career change and education. Another podcast which can help you think differently about your development is the Squiggly Careers podcast, hosted by Helen Topper and Sarah Ellis, the authors of the Sunday Times bestseller, The Squiggly Career. Their episodes are full of practical advice and tools you can put into action about your everyday career challenges. It's a great listen if you need a bit of a kickstart for your development. Just search for Squiggly Careers wherever you find your podcasts. If you went back to your old school today, you might recognise some of the buildings, the classrooms, the corridors or the playground. But even if the physical space hasn't changed all that much, everything else is likely to be very, very different. It's not just that there'd be a sea of new faces. If you peered inside the inner workings of your school, that would be different too. Instead of whiteboards and blackboards, there might be interactive smart boards, maybe even Google Teach. On the timetable, there might be subjects you don't recognize, and what you'd read in the textbooks would be different too, if indeed there were any textbooks. Education is constantly being reformed and in recent years there have been big changes underway. When I was at school we took exams called GCE and of course A-level. Now there are GCSEs and A-levels, but how far away are we from the next big change? I'm Jenny Murray and this is Now I'm Grown Up, a podcast about living longer, career change and education. Each week, we hear from people who've returned to the classroom, now they're really grown up, to retrain as teachers and discover a whole new world of education. Well, this week, we're looking at the education revolution, discussing why past and future changes in education make retraining as a teacher more exciting now than ever before. Joining me today is Laura McInerney, the Guardian Education Columnist and a former teacher who founded the teacher feedback app, Teacher Tap, and Lord Blunkett, a former education secretary in office when the then Prime Minister Tony Blair described his priorities as education, 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 education. and education. education. That, of course, was in the late 90s. So, Laura and David will dig into quite a lot of theory in this episode, but in order to hear what life is really like in today's schools, I'm going to play you a short clip where we hear from Atish Mistry, who started training as a teacher last year. He is one of the younger teachers we'll hear from in this series, but even he returned to a very different classroom from the one he left.
1: I'm Atish and I'm currently a now mathematics teacher at a school in Bambury. And before this, I was in investment banking for a decade. There's many ways in which teaching has changed since I was a pupil. They're really subtle, some of the ways things have changed, and I can understand why from an outside perspective it seems that things haven't. Because unless you spend a sustained amount of time in the classroom, everything can look the same. It's very easy to come in, watch one or two lessons and be like, oh my god, there's no revolution happening, there's no change happening. But technology is definitely one. I think the upskilling of teachers is another and the way that they've dived into new ways of delivering the same content. And then the other things have changed is that teacher networks are so broad. I think if you were a teacher 20 years ago and you had an issue with the classroom, that was kind of coffee room chat, staff room chat. Whereas now I had an issue with behavior management with my year nines, for example, and i could just post something on twitter and get 200 responses on how different teachers would respond to that situation And so those kind of things have obviously had an impact for the teachers that are engaged enough to use those platforms a lot has changed since my experience of being a pupil but i think there's still huge scope for things to revolutionize further i think Two of the main ways in which we'll do that is number one, by updating the curriculum based on feedback from different educational stakeholders, including parents and pupils themselves on what they really want pupils to be spending their time on. And I think the key, and this is the second point, the key lever to doing that is is really re-examining our relationship with standardized testing. And once those interlinked things change, then you open up all this time to really ask the question, what is education all about? And for me, that's when the real revolution begins, is not so much how we teach in the classrooms, but what we teach and why.
2: David, what was your experience of school? Well, mine was pretty bad. It was bad because I was at a school for blind children and it was a residential school. So you have to take into account my prejudices against um, the the kind of exclusion and, if you like, uh, inequality that grew from not being in the mainstream But I did have very thoughtful teachers who did their best from the age of four to teach me Braille, to teach me tactile means of doing maths. Uh, And I think the most important thing was to teach me resilience because uh, you had to survive. And that was about learning to ride a two-wheeler bike when you can't see. It was about roller skating and ending up in the children's hospital. It was about literally coping with life. And I think education at its best is about coping with life. It's preparing you for the ups and downs of adulthood uh, and the way in which, particularly now, change is so rapid that we need to teach young people how to learn.
0: What was your experience of school, Laura?
3: So I was at school in the late 80s and then throughout the 1990s. And I was at what when David was the education secretary, was sometimes called a bog standard comprehensive school. And I guess the 90s was a, a period of time in which most children by that point were in comprehensives. But we weren't really far enough away from the old grammar and secondary modern system to have truly grasped what it was to have every child in the country really getting a brilliant education that was traditional and academic, but also built in those life skills that. That David's just talked about. And I would say that you know when I started school, there was no national curriculum. By the time I left school, it was thoroughly embedded. When I started schools, there were no SATs, there were no tests within primary schools. By the time I left, and in fact, I, I was the first cohort that did SATs through schools, they were embedded. And so it was a real transition and flux period. And what that felt like through that period actually was Things were getting better, but they needed to get better quicker. And then as a teacher in the 2000s, I saw that continued improvement carrying on. And how much better
0: would you say things are now for pupils?
3: I think they're a lot better in some ways and then there are downsides. You don't have, I think, anymore the really serious sink schools that through the 1990s and even in the 2000s you saw. So there were times when you would read Ofsted inspections in those periods of time and you would be talking about massive numbers of pupils missing school, huge levels of misbehaviour. Actually, the level of achievement in some schools was incredibly low and it did feel as if almost nobody cared. Schools could get Ofsted unsatisfactory for years and years and years and nothing was done about it that simply doesn't happen anymore of course occasionally there will be a school that's, that's sort of fell off the edge for a couple of years but very quickly now there are efforts to turn around those schools on the other side That has come about because there's been increased pressure on schools to get better attainment and achievement for children. And nobody should apologise for that, but it has put an awful lot of stress and pressure on certain aspects of schooling, particularly around testing and particularly around examinations. And those exams change children's lives. But I think possibly the experience as a student, as a young person in school now, is more stressed because of that and over-focused on certain parts of school rather than the broader curriculum.
0: David, looking back on when you were Education Secretary, what are the positive changes that you think have happened since you were in that job?
2: Firstly, an acceptance that you did need to invest. When we came in, in 1997, they were spending £600 million a year on buildings and refurbishment. By the time I left, it was £6 billion. By the time the Labour government left, it was £9 billion. And Whilst there's been some re- retention of that, uh, uh, which has been very welcome, it does need to be reflected in what we do going forward because the conditions you work in, the equipment that you have at your disposal makes an enormous difference to firstly how you feel, but also how the pupils feel about themselves and whether they feel respected. So that's a, a positive progress that's been hung on to. And I think that the emphasis, although I disagreed with, many of the things that Michael Gove did when he was Education Secretary, the emphasis he continued to bring on raising standards, I think is a legacy that I'm very proud of. And I think now we need to talk about how we're teaching as well as the qualifications we're teaching for, because there's no doubt in my mind now that we've overdone it, that the e-back, that the concentration on a very narrow curriculum is, is dangerous because we live in a world where soft skills, the ability to communicate, to work as teams, all of that the employers say they want. And then governments say, yes, we want to, to listen to employers and respond, but they don't. They, they want to actually go back to a a, a prep school or a a private school in the 1950s in the home counties. And that's not the world we're moving into.
0: Laura, having reported on education as a journalist for eight years now, how would you say the conversation about what's needed has changed over that time?
3: I think over the past decade, it's been around... Uh, a focus on ensuring that all children had good academic qualifications and a real focus by the government on making sure that just because you were in a deprived area or in a school which traditionally had done a lot of vocational qualifications, that you weren't funneled into that, that actually you always had open to you the opportunity to study full science GCSEs to study history, to study geography, and that no child should do without those. And although it sometimes ended up very imbalanced, I think that was a good conversation to be having. And also the debate around academies and free schools is about enabling really good school leaders, those amazing headteachers who inspire in a community, that they can not just run one school, but many schools. And that's a way of spreading talent out into lots of areas where otherwise a headteacher might have thought, all I've got to do is make sure my children do really well and if the other kids down the road in that rubbish school are not doing so well, I'm not bothered. That's no longer allowed. That's not seen as acceptable. There is a moral duty on every school leader now to be looking out into the community and across the country and seeing who else they can be helping and that's brilliant. It's great as a profession as well.
0: What about the management of behaviour? What have you come across that you wish you'd been in practice when you were at school?
3: Some of the things now around centralization for example of detention systems so there are behavior systems in class where if at the end of a lesson there's been a problem teachers are able to log that it goes straight to an office somebody in the office is able to pick it up over the day they can see if a student started kicking off at 9am then they went to their 10am lesson and then their 11am lesson they're causing problems there are often systems in school where somebody can go get that young person work out what's going on for them liaise with home technology and enables that to happen much more easily. And I think that's a really positive thing because it gives a holistic view of the child. It helps with technology and it takes some of the pressure away from teachers.
0: What for you, Laura, is the best kind of school? I mean, people argue about whether it should be a grammar school, an academy, a free school. What's the best for you?
3: As David alluded to earlier, the structure of how the school It is so whether it's an academy or a free school or anything else that can help with some of the bureaucratic aspects of schooling and so actually one of the benefits of the new structured debate of academies is that you're more able to move teachers from one school to another school more easily than you were under the local authority system so actually if there are several schools in an academy trust that's the group that oversees them and one of the schools that's joined is struggling maybe with its maths department and you've got an amazing maths teacher in another school. You're able to move them over to spend a term or a year with that school spreading their ideas. And it's one of the things when Atish talked there about the transformative power of networks. That's really useful in in teaching to be able to get that spread. But I don't think that's the thing that makes it a good school. The name above the door or even the bureaucracy is not what matters. Teacher quality is really what drives the change, and that teacher quality has many different levels. It's about how knowledgeable the teachers are, both of their subject and also of pedagogy. It's how empathic those teachers are, and I don't mean something sugary and sweet and feeling sorry for children. It's literally about the extent to which you care about those students. You can communicate that. And as David said, you have high aspirations for every single one of your students. And that's a huge difference, I would say, between the time when I was at school and now. There really shouldn't be, or very rarely do we see, a school where there aren't a number of teachers in that school pulling for every child to do something brilliant in the future. But the opportunities for that, it's come back to David's point on lifelong learning, I think have been pulled away. So I also went to FE. uh, I did night school. I also did open university at times. Those opportunities are much more limited, I would say, than even 20 years ago. So we've sort of got schools much better. They're much more able to spread teachers around. They're much more able to use technology. The teachers are knowledgeable and getting ever more knowledgeable. There's this new thing called the Early Careers Framework, which gives every teacher for a few years when they start the right to more professional development. And that's incredible. But if all of that just points towards university and actually there aren't lots of different routes and opportunities for young people, then it's going to fall apart right at the very end, right when we send those children into the labour market or onto further education.
2: And Jenny, I agree entirely with Laura. I think that good leadership, first-class leadership, but also inspirational teaching is absolutely crucial to success. And the youngsters themselves have got to feel... it's worth it, that there's going to be something after this that will carry them forward into wanting to continue to learn. Because, I mean, I I believe that every day I learn something new and when I don't, I'll be dead. So I think we've got to just inspire. And I do think that actually we have a cohort of teachers now that is absolutely tip top. I think that over the years, over the last 25 years, we've inspired young and old to want to come into teaching. People have had, as as we've already illustrated with Atish, we've, we've got people who have done something else and then decided, what I really want to do is to be valued for what I am and what I do and to bring their experience back into uh, the classroom and beyond the classroom, because the other thing that the pandemic's taught us is how inspirational we can be by linking online with face to face, linking the home with the school, widening it into the community. If we could get that as a as a theme and as an inspiration, then I think we're, we're on a winner.
0: And How, Laura, would you say pupils should be assessed in the future and disciplined?
3: Blimey, on the assessment question, I think probably smarter people than me are already working on this. There is often a big divide between those who believe that exams are the fairest way or certainly the most objective way of ensuring that students can get grades. And of course, we saw last year when there aren't exams and you try and move to other systems, you can end up with huge unfairnesses and even teacher assessment can have huge biases built into it. So I think to move away from exams entirely would be the wrong thing to do. But um we can end up in a world where it's only exams and that's the world we've ended up in. They're very, very high stakes. They all happen at the same time. And if you don't manage in one week at the age of 16 to be perfectly together in your life, then you're into problems. And I met a woman last year on the train and I said to her, have you got children? You know, She had said about her children. And of course, I always talk to them about schools. What age are they? She said, I've got one doing GCSEs and one doing A-levels. I said, blimey, it must be a bit tense in your house. And she said, well, it could be worse. Their father died last year. And I said, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that. And she said, and even worse, we applied to get special dispensation because you can get a mark against it on your exams. She said, unfortunately, it only lasts for six months. He died two weeks too early. Now I've been a massive exams advocate always because of the fairnesses, and that really changed how I felt about it because I thought that can't be true. And I went away and I looked and there is a sort of misery rate card that the exams have. You know, if you, if you lose a limb in the months running up to your exam, you can get a percentage. I think it's two or three percent added to your exams. And I thought, this is ridiculous. We have built a system where When everything doesn't go exactly right in the right week, we give you two or three percent. What about second chances? What about a more flexible system? What about something more humane, really? What have we become when that's the exam system? So I don't think where we are is right, but I wouldn't want to come away from it completely. David? I was just
2: going to say it's a sensible mix, isn't it, that we need that actually ensures that we, we test a range of skills. I mean, what I was tested in was my memory. I happened at the time to have a brilliant memory. It's not quite as it used to be, but that saw me through. I passed O-level physics. I knew nothing about physics, but I'd learned enough in the last three months of the the year I was taking it to be able to pass. That's a ridiculous situation.
0: That was pretty much the situation I was in. I was in Barnsley in a girls' grammar school, (laughs) and it was just learn, 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 and Mm. churn it out Mm. on the day. And of course, we all did very well in in that way. David, I, I think we can accept that we need more teachers and we need really good teachers. What we are talking about in our podcasts is the idea of older people having done a career, deciding they're going to do something different and they decide to teach. In this technological world where so much seems to have changed, how easy do you reckon it would be for somebody in their 50s or 60s to take on the education system
2: at the moment as a teacher? I think the challenge will be adapting to the way in which young people operate i mean if you've just had teenagers yourself you're in a different ball game aren't you you're learning about it if you come in when your children are in their 20s or 30s then you are actually learning new skills, as well as teaching. You'll have the great experience of having been in the world of work. You'll know all about pressures in the world of work. You'll be able to cope with that. But the two things that really arise, and we've touched on them already, are discipline issues. You've got to like young people to teach. You've got to really warm to them rather than be afraid of them. Uh, and secondly, that business of learning the tech and being able to use it effectively. Now, in many jobs, you will have been expected to do so and you won't have been expected to to put it on one side. When I was Education Employment Secretary, we spent a billion pounds on buying tech, early tech, for schools. What we didn't do was train the teachers in how to use it.
0: How do you think, Laura, older people can easily step into teaching, having done another and possibly very different career?
3: I mean, I think on the technology point, actually schools have kind of gone backwards on that and fell behind a lot of workplaces actually so although during David Time's education secretary a lot of money went into technology for the last 10 or 11 years it hasn't so it may well be that if you come from another industry you'll get to school and be surprised at how untechnological it is recently i run an app called teacher tap which surveys teachers each day and we were asking about pigeonholes and actually the majority of schools still have some kind of place where they put paper notes Into trays. And thankfully, that's changed a little through the pandemic as people have started to move to online systems. But schools are not always as technological as you might think. So that will be a barrier for some, but not for everybody.
0: I remember, David, when we've had discussions about these kind of things all those years ago, you were very keen about teaching citizenship and supporting families in education and in health. And I I remember often thinking, good Lord, are we expecting too much of teachers? You know, they've got to do sex education, they've got to look after the children's welfare and their well-being.
2: Do we expect too much, really? Very often we do, but that's because we don't recruit necessarily in the areas that we want to develop. I'm still trying to get the current uh, administration to take on board the fact that teaching citizenship well actually does inspire youngsters in other areas of the curriculum the the national foundation for educational research has proved in my view uh, unequivocally that actually if you inspire youngsters to know about the world about their place in it about their 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 role as meaningful and involved and engaged adults, then they'll engage with other areas of the curriculum. Now, that battle's still to be won, but we need to actually teach teachers to be citizenship teachers. So you do need to be able to provide bursaries and widen the area in which young, young people or those returning uh, with this massive life experience to teaching, um, actually can see that they can make that contribution. David,
0: what would be the most important reform that could take place in education now?
2: I think, actually, a complete reassessment of the examination system. I've long believed that grade boundaries and what's called norm referencing that we saw thrown up by the algorithm is not the way to actually determine whether young people have done well. In the end, the examination system, which we do need, is actually to see firstly how pupils have fared, how they've done, but secondly how the teaching in those particular institutions has has actually been applied. So, you know, let's go back to basics and say, what is it we're trying to test? What is it for? And what do we do with it when we've tested rather than seeing it as a sausage machine? And then we can then adapt teaching to meet it. So how you teach, going back to Atish's point, uh, which he, he sort of felt was a secondary point, would emerge as a really critical point so that teachers would be inspired to be able to adapt to the pupils they've got in their classroom and be able to inspire them in turn to actually want to be engaged and to continue learning. So what for you, Laura,
0: would be the most important reform that should take place now?
3: I think the reason I struggle to answer this is because I actually think schools are so much further forward than where they were. And I think they're doing extraordinary things. The pandemic has shown it, but if anything, what it's shown is that they're doing too much. You know, last year, head teachers went from running schools to running schools, remote schools, food delivery laptop delivery, now they're running track and trace and I actually think the biggest challenges in schools come from the pastoral challenges for children who are not getting the broader social services and so most of my feeling is if there's any political capacity if there's any cash left, if there's any parliamentary time, if we could put that towards looking again at housing and homelessness if we could look again at poverty and universal credit, those are causing such damaging issues, policing and the lack of joined up thinking around gangs, for example, those are causing such big issues in schools that when you're a teacher and you teach, for example, in a secondary school, 300 or 400 children per week, and you can see that one of your children is really going downhill because their parents have lost their job, they've lost their home, they're now being shunted around from pillar to post because there isn't proper housing. You aren't able to do anything other than ensure that that child turns up and does their work and you try so hard to get them their qualifications, but you're really relying on other people in the system to be able to do their part well. And I think those parts of the system haven't been looked after and haven't had the improvements that schools have had over the last 20 to 30 years and certainly over the last 10 years. So I would put it all all back to those areas.
2: And that's why why a holistic approach, a Mm government-wide approach is so Crucial. It takes a village, don't they say, to grow a child. It takes a whole government commitment to provide an adequate education system.
0: Thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Do follow this show and catch us next time when we'll be asking one of the biggest questions of our time. What are schools
2: really for? And it's so nice to have you doing this, Jenny. I have to say, without being flattering, it's... um, You see, old talent is still talent. (laughs)
0: Did you just call me old talent, you cheeky old monkey?
2: (laughs) (laughs) And it's nice to have done it with Laura as well, so that's very good.
3: Now I'm Grown Up is brought to you by Now Teach, a charity which inspires talented people to bring their experience into the classroom. If you feel like a change and want to use your existing skills in exciting new ways, nowteach.org.uk Or, if you know someone who you think would be an amazing teacher, send them this podcast. Maybe it'll be just the push they need. And don't forget to follow the show and leave it a rating on Apple Podcasts. Now I'm Grown Up is produced by Antonia Cundy and Theodora Leludis. And the credits are read by me, Livy Podba, age 12.